Welcome to the first episode of the Kirsch Sports Podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Kirschenblatt. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time now. As a sports radio junkie and someone who's had experience in the sports journalism business, a podcast is a great avenue to get your opinions out there and to talk to some interesting people. The formula I'm going to go with here is I'm going to have a couple of segments with some expert guests on their sport, and then you'll hear from me at the end. In this episode, we're going to talk some MLB, then NBA, and then we'll end off with some hockey. So I hope everybody listening will enjoy and stay tuned to CursedSports.com for more sports content from me and hopefully some of my guests in the future. At this stage of the season two years ago, the Blue Jays were at a point that they knew only too well. It had been 22 years since they not only won the World Series, but even made the playoffs. During that time, they have seen beloved stars such as Roger Clemens, Carlos Delgado, Sean Green, Vernon Wells, and Roy Halladay all come and go with only mediocrity to show for it in the city of Toronto. It is gotten to a point where fans started to ignore their favorite summer sport, leaving around 12,000 fans to see Roy Halladay finish his career in the Blue Jay uniform. That all changed in July 2015 when we saw numerous acquisitions from then-GM Alex Anthopoulos in the form of Troy Tulowitzki and David Price, the complement core of Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, and Josh Donaldson. To go along with that, is a pitching staff that surprised a lot of people like Marco Estrada and Jay Happ the next year, and some young up-and-coming pitchers like Marcus Stroman and, and Aaron Sanchez. This pushed this team to challenge even the Toronto Maple Leafs as kings of the city. Now, this core went two seasons going to the ALCS before losing both of them to Kansas City and Cleveland consecutively, And now they find themselves back in that familiar position of mediocrity right now. They are fighting for relevance in the 2017 playoff picture with one of the oldest lineups in Major League Baseball. So joining me now is Keegan Matheson, the Blue Jays reporter for MLB.com, and he has the honor of being the first ever guest on the Cursed Sports podcast. Keegan, how's it going? Even better now, Adam, that I know I am number one. This is either... This is either a very high honor or you're setting the bar low so that everything that follows can be an improvement. Uh, well, you know, you're <laughs> <laughs> it's been one of those it's been one of those years for the Blue Jays and unfortunately for you and your first time covering it for MLB, you got the crappy years. Yeah, it's been uh, a strange one because they were expected to be perhaps not better than last year, but about the same. Their off season was all about staying the same. A move like Steve Pierce, that's a middle-of-the-road move about staying the same. J.P. Howell, Chris Smith, Joe Smith, sorry. It's about keeping the thing going, and the talent was still there. Bringing back Bautista is another move that points to that, but uh, it just hasn't worked. It's not an issue of talent, I don't think, Adam. You look at teams that are above them in the wild card race put the rosters side by side the blue jays have more talent put the blue jays roster in front of a casual fan and they can say oh i know that guy that guy that guy that's no problem <laughs> it's just a matter of playing the game which unfortunately has to happen and it's uh, it hasn't been terrible so far it's just been very average which sometimes it's 
it's very boring. You know, when you hang around 500, there's no big streaks one way or the other. It's just kind of there. Yeah, and I was looking at the the Jays' record so far this season. Just going through the st- the schedule that they've had up until this point, it's been a lot of lose two, win one, win two, lose one, that type of thing. But against the AL East opponents, which is the real deciding factor for a playoff spot, they're 15 and 25. So that's not a good start for them, especially if they have any plans on winning the AL East. But what do you think about the wild card? Because the AL East record doesn't matter as much when you're looking at the wild card spot. Yeah, I think at this point, the AL East, it, this could change in a couple of weeks, but really the Jays are, are going for a wild card spot right now. The East is pretty tough. But the AL wild card is so unique because when you look at the NL wild card, for example, there's a lot of space. Teams are pretty spread out. But in the AL wild card, even the worst team is still pretty close. <laughs> it's not crazy to think that everybody could make a run at this. And it, you know, all of these teams are in the middle. And that's kind of the league that you know, we have right now in baseball. The Adding the second wild card spot produced that. And I think that's awesome because it makes a really fun league. You you no longer just have you know, the Red Sox win the division and the Yankees run away with the wild card because there's one spot. That's not very exciting. Now that you have two wild card spots, everybody thinks they can make a run at that. And very few teams. In, in the AL, I, I guess the A's aren't really going for it. Maybe the White Sox aren't all over it. But everybody else at least thinks they can make a run. So... People stay pretty close. Nobody blows up their team until the last minute, and the wild card is still sitting right there. Even if the Jays don't really, you know, I don't want to say they don't deserve to have a big shot at it right now. Of course they do, but you'd expect that they would be much further back than they are. You'd expect it was much worse than it is. Well, yes, and after Saturday's game, the Jays are 41-46 and with four games back of that wild card spot. Now the Chicken Littles in the Toronto fan base are calling for the Jays to rebuild or blow it up now, seeing how they've performed this year, especially the this past Sunday against the Red Sox in Canada Day weekend where they lost 15-1. to Some are saying that's the low point of the season. Uh, others are saying, well, there's still a shot because it's only four games. Uh, where do you stand? Well, I think it depends on the roster that they have. You're not going to blow up a roster that has Troy Tulowitzki and Russell Martin making 20 million bucks each the next few years. It just doesn't really work. Most of Toronto's big name prospects are not MLB ready next year, right? So it's they're not really in a spot to tear it down and rebuild. Uh, it's it's either you, know, you buy some pieces or you kind of retool. You know, you maybe take one step back, one step forward, make a sideways move or something. But uh, I think. If you look at likelihoods, maybe that's the best way to frame this. Is it likelier that the Blue Jays play even worse than this, or is it likelier that they bounce back? And I think all of the numbers for most of these individuals would suggest that they bounce back even just a little bit. I'm talking Tulowitzki, Bautista, looking at Steve Pierce, Kendry Morales, pitchers, Marco Estrada by a long shot, Aaron Sanchez, Francisco Liriano, all of these players should bounce back a little bit. Now, they won't all bounce back, but even if a couple of them do, that should be enough to stay in the conversation and at least make up some ground, you know, make a run at it in September. And, you know, they don't have any glaring needs because these 
player is improving should take care of most of those needs. You know, maybe you need a, a second baseman or uh, you know a little rotation depth or some bullpen help or something. But you know, they're not going to go out and buy David Price again. But I think you'll see a little tinkering, and they're they're going to go for it more than they step back. I think. Well, the big difference so far that I've seen this year compared to last year is that last year they really only needed to use seven pitchers throughout the entire year. And three of those pitchers, Estrada, Happ, and Sanchez, all had career years and everybody stayed healthy. What do you see with the pitching staff now in the present, what they should do? Because Estrada hasn't been himself, Happ hasn't been himself, Sanchez has barely played all year. And Stroman has probably been our best pitcher, but it's still not really saying much with this current pitching staff. So what would you say they should do with the pitching staff? Well, for the rest of this year and looking at Estrada and Lariano, who are free agents at the end of the year and Hap only having one year left, do you see them having a future here? Well, that's probably the biggest story of the whole season, Adam, because even last year with the seven starters, one of them was Liriano, so he was just added as a, a bit of an upgrade. And another was Hutchison, who made a few spot starts, uh, most of which were just on purpose to give guys rest. So it wasn't like you were going down to Mike Bolsinger, Matt Latos, Joe, Joe Biagini over and over and over again, which is what happens most years. This year is a normal year. Last year was really abnormal. But you know, if you were in a year where Estrada and Liriano were lighting the world on fire, maybe you can get some great value for them. But, you know, Estrada definitely is not doing that. Liriano is not doing that. So hypothetically, if you were to go to trade one of those two, you're not getting a good return at this point. So your best bet, your, your best value is to probably step back and say, hey, let's hope they turn it around and, and help the Blue Jays instead of you know, getting some other team's number 12 prospect or something like that. That, that won't be a huge impact. So, Half is especially interesting, you know, having another year left. And I think it's important to keep him around because when you look to next season, you have Sanchez and Stroman locked in, you know, quote unquote locked in. We see what happened with Sanchez this year. You'd love to have half in there to bridge the gap. Maybe be a genie is in there, maybe a free agent, but uh, I'm not sure if any of the prospects are ready to step up and pitch 180 plus innings in the rotation next year. So, You'd love to have him stick around as a bridge here and let some of those prospects get ready. You just have to hope Estrada and Liriano turn it around because you know, without that, you're facing some tough decisions later in the year. You know, they've got ERAs up over five, and it's, you know, it's not going to work. You know, hopefully Sanchez can turn that around as well because he should be the team's best pitcher. He has the highest potential, I think, still, even higher than Stroman, and really just hasn't even impacted the year. He's, he, you might as well look at this season as not even including Aaron Sanchez yet. Right. And one thing that you just mentioned there about the prospects, historically for the Blue Jays, they've always had that next pitching star on the horizon, whether it be Syndergaard, Sanchez, Nicolino, or Halliday back in the day, or guys like that. You don't really hear about the pitching prospects anymore. It's all about Vlad Guerrero Jr. at this stage. So who are the type of guys that we'd be looking at in the J system that could maybe take one of those roles next year or the year after? Yeah, there's a few guys right in the mid-range. Now, Guerrero and Bichette on the positional side, they get all the buzz, much deserved. But the Jays have a group of maybe five or six guys that you hope one or two step ahead from. 
The top ranked in a lot of rankings you'll see is Connor Green, uh, a big right-hander, a body kind of like Aaron Sanchez, has put on some weight lately, and really has kind of followed the Aaron Sanchez path through the minor leagues. He's got all the velocity you could dream of. He's hit 100, 101 a couple times. I even heard that he hit 102 in the minors at one point this year. But walks a lot of guys, doesn't have the best control, doesn't have the best secondary pitches, which is what we heard about Sanchez. Now, Sanchez came up uh, first as a reliever, figured it out, and really grew physically and mentally into a starter. Maybe Green can do that. Maybe he's a reliever. Uh, I don't know. He's got a ton of talent. Uh, you have guys like TJ Zoic, the first rounder last year, who's a, he's six foot seven, a huge guy, ground ball pitcher, uh, can really rack those up. So he's interesting. Can be a bit of a workhorse, I think, a couple years down the road. John Harris having a really tough year. Uh, Sean Reed Foley, another big prospect name, having a tough year. <laughs> on Helper Domo, a lefty, Ryan Barucki. I think uh, is one I'll highlight. Ryan Barucki's on the 40-man roster now. He's just in high A Dunedin, but probably has the best change-up in the entire organization as a young left-hander. Good feel for pitching, smart player, good person around the field. Everybody likes him. So, you know, all of these guys are promising and exciting arms, but they all kind of have a but. Or <laughs> they don't have that uh, Sanchez or Syndergaard ceiling, right? Now, so maybe you, you develop a couple guys out of that group that are a number four starter, maybe a number three starter. And if you can keep Sanchez and Stroman around, well, maybe that's enough, right? Maybe you don't, maybe you don't need to develop an ace out of the group. Now, looking at this current era of the Jays, like the 2015 to present version of the Jays, and I've mentioned to you this before, like and when we've talked, I always compare it to hockey because that's my number one sport. This team reminds me of the 93 Maple Leafs in the sense that they made a big trade to get a star player in Josh Donaldson in the comparison with the Maple Leafs would have been Doug Gilmore back then. And they made a bunch of moves to become great instantly, but then they became really old fast. Now, the thing is with this Blue Jay team is that they, the core of this team and using Incarnacion before he left for Cleveland – those star players came into their own very late in their careers. So where do you see this core of the team being viable as a winning team? How long do you see them being a winning team, considering Bautista's 36, Tulewitzki's 34, and Donaldson's 33? In the current way they're made up, I think it's, it's this year. If you're going to be competitive with this group next year, you need to change it a little bit. I'm not saying you need to blow it up, but you know, will Bautista be here next year? Eh, I, I don't know. You know uh, you, you've got an old roster. You, you can't avoid that. If you gave Kevin Pillar a day off, the Blue Jays right now could start a starting nine, all 30-plus, everybody at least 30 years old, most of them you know, 33 or 34. That's good in terms of experience, in terms of veteran presence, uh, maybe not the greatest in terms of uh, foot speed, bat speed at times. And, you know, a lot of players can succeed right up until they're 40. Look at someone like uh, Carlos Beltran or Adrian Beltran. But not everybody is that way. So it's okay for right now, for today and tomorrow and next month. But 
I think this off season is the one where you can't just say you want to get younger. You have to just buckle up and get rid of you know, age somehow. Some of that will happen naturally by guys like Estrada, uh, you know, Liriano hitting free agency. Somebody like Joe Smith, he may leave in free agency as well, even though he's had a great year. But you've got to get younger. You've got to develop prospects to to fill those holes. Uh, got to have prospects play for the team eventually <laughs> you know it's it's exciting to talk about them but the prospects for the blue jays always seem to be this far off mystical thing whereas a team like the astros who they're playing right now those far off mystical things finally made it there and now they're the best team in baseball so you uh, you've got to get younger after this year well the thing is with the astros they were bad for a good two or three years and then they eventually came up there. Now, the Jays, they actually, as we say, they emptied the farm when they made all those trades in 2015. So they're restocking that right now. So do you still see this as another two or three years away? Uh, no, because they're, they are you know, in a better place than the Astros were, I guess, before they really tore down. Now, the Astros, in a twisted way, they were in kind of a, an enviable position because – they sucked. They were not good. And they could say, hey, listen, we are going to bottom out. We're going to absolutely crash and burn, but then we're going to be really good. You know, I don't know if the Blue Jays could really sell that to anybody right now because you know, they haven't been bad recently. They're more in the middle, so they have, to take, you know, they have to find a way to take one step back, two steps forward, maybe. Just get that incremental jump ahead while developing the players they have right now. Because, you know, even guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is probably going to be the top prospect in baseball at the end of the year, Bo Bichette, maybe one or two of these pitching prospects. Within a couple of years, they can be ready. Uh, you know, towards the end of Tulowitzki and Martin's deal, whatever happens with Josh Donaldson, who knows. But, uh, you know, they need to stay competitive, I think. And one sign... I think that they're going to keep it going this way is the fact that John Gibbons is around for a couple more years. Uh, He's a a veteran manager. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, he's he's good at managing veteran players. Uh, I don't think you give John Gibbons a team full of 20 year olds and say, Hey, teach them baseball. Uh, He's, he's a a great leader of veterans. So uh, I think that's what the team's going to be one way or the other for better or for worse. Let's say the Blue Jays are four games out of a wild card spot come the trade deadline. If you were Mark Shapiro, what would you do? I think if you're still just four out, I think at that point you look for any sideways moves that you can make. You know, what they call a baseball trade, which is a, a dumb saying I've never understood. You hear it in, you know, a good hockey trade where both teams win somehow, but you know, you can find deals like that when more people are willing to make deals at the deadline. It's a, a much looser market. Maybe one team really needs some bullpen help and you need second base help and you help each other out, something like that. But, you know, if anything, I think you buy just a little bit and <laughs> and see if you can't sneak into that wild card because, you know, once a team is in the playoffs, yes, it's about who the best team is, kind of most of the time a lot of the time it's just luck and who's hot at the right time you know you the truest way to determine the champion in baseball would be 
first place overall in the season, right? Because that's 162 games, but you can kind of streak your way to a World Series in the playoffs, so maybe that happens. Uh, I think, you know, maybe if they're seven-ish, you know, seven, eight games back, then you think about, okay, let's see if we can get some prospects. But otherwise, uh, I think they stay the course. Let's say they are those seven, eight games back, and they end up looking at maybe dealing a Donaldson, a Tulowitzki, Martin, any of those guys. How do you think this fan base would take that? Uh, Now, as I mentioned off the top, they've had to sit back and watch 22 years of no baseball playoffs. Like, for a lot of people who are a little younger than myself, they had never seen the playoffs before 2015. So do you think at this point, given how many people have bought season tickets are all in on the Jays, do you think the fans would stand for a rebuild? Mm, Not at first. It would be, I think it would be exactly like when Alex Anthopoulos left and Ross Atkins, Mark Shapiro came in. Um, From talking to fans and having fans tweet me and holler at me, a lot of fans have really come around on Atkins and Shapiro, which they should because, you know, I'm not biased because I don't care what the Jays do or win or lose, but Atkins and Shapiro are a very good front office. You know, Atkins was one of the most respected young executives in the game. And and Shapiro, you can say the same thing about him, the respect he had around the league. But it's because you loved Anthopolis, the relatable Canadian man that was there. So fans are going to be mad that things they like are not there, no matter who it is or what it is. If you, you know, if you renamed the Rogers Center, the Rogers Field tomorrow, people would get mad just because it's not normal. But uh, I, I think as long as there's a clear path, the casual fan would not be excited with getting back a top pitching prospect, but next year they will be when the prospect comes up and throws a hundred and strikes everyone out, maybe, you know, and you know, the, the fans who are a little more hardcore and in depth, you know, they'll see that right away. So as long as you're not just wasting money and blowing games and being stupid, I think the outrage would be pretty short lived. And, you know, the, the cold analytical way to look at it is I don't know if the outrage would last long enough for it to really tank ticket sales. I think you'd need another bad season or two to really have that happen. But as long as there's a, a you know a path that people can understand. Hopefully we don't get to this point if uh, you're a Blue Jays fan. But thank you again, Keegan, for joining me. This has been great, and I hope to have you back in the future. Anytime, man. My pleasure. This was great. All right. Thanks. That's Keegan Matheson from MLB.com. The NBA has had one of its craziest off-seasons in its history so far, and it's only been a week. A number of the league's top stars have been either traded or changed teams through free agency, but mostly it's been going east to west, so all the stars have been headed to the Western Conference. You see Paul George going to Oklahoma City, you see Butler going from Chicago to Minnesota, 
and it's just been an incredible arms race in the Western Conference. Now, the Raptors haven't been totally silent this offseason with their ability to retain Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry, but really they've remained the same from last year. Joining me now is Alex Arthur, who has covered the NBA closely and has played high-level college ball both here in Canada and the United States. Alex, it's been quite the week. <laughs> How you doing, Adam? Yes, it has been. Uh, how was your long weekend before we get started? Oh, it's been good. Between both the NBA and the NHL, has just been crazy news all weekend. I know. I've been loving it. I mean, it's the off season, but it still feels like the season's going on with all the action and all the news. You know, even in hockey, you have Connor McDavid signing a $100 million contract. You have guys in the NBA signing $100 million, $200 million contracts. It's been crazy all the money that they've been giving up the past couple of days. Yeah, and you see Connor McDavid with $100 million eight-year contract. Then you see Kyle Lowry with $100 million three years, which is just nuts. <laughs> so, yeah, that salary cap in the NBA just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Less guys on the roster, bigger, bigger contracts, right? <laughs> exactly. So, Alex, what has been the biggest impact move so far in the NBA? Well, the biggest impact move so far, NBA free agency, uh, I would definitely say Chris Paul going to the Rockets to me probably is one of the biggest moves in NBA free agency. Just because what it's done is it's done something similar to what Kevin Durant did last year when he left Oklahoma City. He left Oklahoma City to go to an even better powerhouse. By doing that, what he did, it created a very huge gap in the Western Conference because now one of the top contenders in the West basically became a non-contender. They became a pretender when he left. Although they, Russell Westbrook did have an amazing season, he had to carry that team on, on their back once Kevin Durant left and went to Golden State, which obviously he won finals MVP, they won the finals, and they were amazing this season. I feel that Chris Paul going to the Rockets does a bit of the same thing. Him leaving and sort of breaking up another contender. I mean, they were pretty much a pretender the last few years in the Western Conference, but for namesake, we'll call them a contender and I believe with Chris Paul leaving, you know, he he was the heartbeat of that team because as a point guard, he was a great leader. He was a floor general. He always knew where to put guys in their spots. J.J. Redick, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, etc. Losing Chris Paul was very devastating for the organization. And I would say that Chris Paul heading over to the Rockets was probably the biggest move of the offseason so far. Do you see the Clippers? They managed to re-sign Blake Griffin to a five-year deal. But you look at DeAndre Jordan and what happened last year with the Clippers coming over there and locking him in a room, and then those guys who locked him in a room all of a sudden start leaving. How do you think he feels right now? I mean, well, DeAndre, I think, you know, he, he's wishing that he could have last summer back. But at the same time, I I understand it's a very stressful decision. It's a, it's a You know, there's a lot of pressure on you as a player. Uh, you want to keep your organization happy, but you also like to go out there and experience and see what else is out there for you and see if, if your career can flourish in maybe another city, if, uh, you know, a change of scenery might be something that can rejuvenate your career. But I believe after the summer that DeAndre Jordan had last year in 2016, it made sense for him to continue to grow and build with the Clippers because he had grown so much since he had first gotten to L.A. So it, it was only right for him to maybe stay and see how much he could continue to grow in that center position for the Clippers. But right now, without having a floor general like Chris Paul, I'm sure he's probably 
Uh, I don't want to say he's regretting his decision, but he's definitely looking at, hey, uh, you know, if I if I can make a move, if I can get out of here, I need to consider my best options because a player like DeAndre Jordan, he doesn't have very many post moves. So he's very dependent on the point guard to get in his basket. He needs lobs in and around of the basket. He needs a point guard that's going to set him up, that's going to run, pick, and roll, and that's going to find him when he's crashing hard to the rim. So definitely uh, he, he needs to look into a situation uh, like that where he can excel. But, I mean, the Clippers, they have picked up Pat Beverly. They've picked up another European guard that scouts are raving as maybe one of the best passers in the NBA right now, and he hasn't even played a game. I, I've seen some highlight clips, and he looks great. I may be saying his name wrong, but I believe it's Milos Tadosic. And uh, I believe he's coming over from either Croatia or Serbia. Excuse me if I am wrong. But from the highlights that I've seen, I mean, I know highlight clips can be very misconstrued. But from what I've seen, he does look good. So the Clippers aren't in a terrible spot. But a guy like DeAndre Jordan, he may want to look out there and see what else is on the market. Well, that guard you spoke of, that actually, from what I've read, he is the top player who's not in the NBA from what a lot of people say. So we've heard that before, but we'll see how this goes with the Clippers. Looking over to the Rockets right now. How does this affect their standing in the East? Now, we uh, we assume the Warriors are still going to be number one, but do they have a similar problem to, let's say, the Raptors and the Celtics have, where they stay at number two, or they solidify themselves as two, three, four, but they have really no shot at going, getting past the Cavaliers? What I like about the Houston Rockets organization is their general manager. Their general manager, Daryl Morey, I mean, this guy, he's a genius, he's an MIT graduate, and he's always looking for new and innovative ways to improve the roster. Uh, he's a big analytics guy. I, myself, just because I'm a, an old-school basketball fan, I'm not the biggest analytics fan, but I do respect Daryl Morey and what he's trying to accomplish. And uh, he's a big fan of the three-point shot, and that's why, if you notice, Houston's a team where either it's, if it's not the long three-ball – it's a layup and you know he's created a roster that is solely based on spreading the floor and hitting open jump shots and open three-pointers and having bigs that can crash to the rim and finish those dunks and finish those layups so i i do i do think that he will create a roster that will be able to challenge golden state now will they be better than golden state i mean that that's hard to say golden state has four of top maybe 15 players in the nba so a team that has four of the top 15 players in the NBA, I mean, in essence, the only way to surpass them is to have as many top players in the top 15 or maybe even one more, but that isn't very likely. So definitely it's to find that right mix of talent along with chemistry to have a team and have a roster that's a full, fully oiled machine that can challenge a Golden State. And I think Houston is on their way there. So definitely with moves like picking up Chris Paul, they've also picked up Lou Williams. They picked well, they picked up Lou Williams at the end of this season. They still have the sixth man of the year, Eric Gordon. They picked up a few uh, a few other players in the offseason. So they're definitely trying to make some moves. They're definitely uh, trying to improve, and they're definitely trying to challenge Golden State for that number one spot in the West. Now, will they take that number one spot? Uh, that's yet to be seen, but definitely with the roster that they're bringing out there, having Chris Paul and James Harden under Mike D'Antoni, I feel like that'll definitely uh, rejuvenate Chris Paul's career like it did James Harden's career last season, and I think it'll be one of the first times ever in NBA uh, history where you'll have two guys on the same team finishing the top three for assists in the season. I think both James Harden and Chris Paul will somehow figure it out to Average 20-plus points a game. Chris Paul may maybe just a hint under 20, but they'll both average double-digit assists. 
as I mentioned off the top, there was a graphic on uh, ESPN where like 15 of the top 20 stars in the NBA all moved west. How does that play out for the Raptors, who remains status quo, where their standing in the Eastern Conference really hasn't changed too much, but they haven't really done anything else? Well, yeah, the Raptors, like you said, they're staying the status quo. They haven't necessarily improved, but they haven't necessarily gotten any worse either. I mean, we did lose Patrick Patterson to the Oklahoma City Thunder, but I do think with the bargain that they got Patrick Patterson for OKC did, I think it was a mutual part of ways between the Raptors and Patrick Patterson. It's no hard feelings, but I think they're just looking or going in a different direction or looking for something more than what Patrick can necessarily uh, give to us because we know what we're going to get from a Patrick. And with signing up a Sergi Baca and knowing that we're going to play a lot more small ball with signing a Sergi Baca, I think that it wasn't so much a necessity for the Raptors to uh, look into locking up Patrick Patterson. But with all of uh, these all-stars going west, you have Paul Millsap from Atlanta going over to Denver. You have, obviously, Paul George going over to OKC. And also, as well, with Jimmy Butler going over to Minnesota. The east, the road, the, the travel to the conference finals seems to be a lot easier on paper. But they're still the king. <laughs> and as long as you still have the king in the Eastern Conference, making it to the finals can be just as hard as winning a championship. That Cleveland team is a championship caliber team that, you know, they came down from a 3-1 victory last year, uh, you know, didn't have such a great outing this year against Golden State. But that team is still designed to make it and to eventually or possibly win an NBA championship. So with with that one roster in the Eastern Conference, it really doesn't matter if, all of the all-stars that aren't on Cleveland <laughs> go over to the Western Conference. Any team in the East that's trying to make it to the finals will have to go through Cleveland, and Cleveland will be strong as usual. Now, speaking of the King, LeBron, there's been some rumors that uh, he may well take his talents over to Hollywood next year, over with the Lakers. <laughs> so with that, the Cavs have swung and missed on a few big-name guys, uh, whether it be Paul George or other guys. Is there a scenario where you see him staying in Cleveland past this year? And if he does move east, is this a good move by the Raptors to stay status quo because then, or move west, sorry. Uh, is this a good move, good move for the Raptors to stay status quo so there might be a path to that finals? Definitely. I, I well, just to answer the first question of do I think LeBron will head west uh, out to La La Land, uh, that one, I'm not quite sold on it right now at the moment, to be honest with you. I, I do like what the Lakers are doing with Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka in front off. And I do think that the Lakers have made some moves, especially with drafting Lonzo Ball and some of the offseason moves that they're making that they are headed in the right direction. Now, can they claim a LeBron, uh, a LeBron James and a Paul George? Uh, that I, I don't I don't know because right now, I mean, with the type of player that LeBron James is, I feel with a, a budding star and a growing player like Alonzo Ball, that may put a, a bit of a regression on Alonzo Ball's growth. And I feel like a player like Alonzo, even next year, 2018, with that only going to be his second season in the NBA, I don't think he's ready to have a LeBron James takeover because right now LeBron James and where he is in his career. If he goes to an organization, he's not going there to be a second or third best player, especially not to Alonzo Ball. I mean, if there were something where he could somehow be on Golden State and it, you know, be fair for the league, 
uh, then maybe he would take a backseat to a Steph Curry or a Kevin Durant. But besides those few names or maybe even a Kawhi Leonard or a James Harden, there isn't many people that LeBron James would ever take a second option to in the NBA. So I don't necessarily see how that would work. What I have heard that may potentially work is I don't think Golden State will be able to keep all of their all-stars. And Clay Thompson and Paul George heading over to uh, the Lakers in 2018, that may be a little bit more realistic, hopefully, for the Lakers. And that would be a great team, having Alonzo Ball with a Clay Thompson and a Paul George heading into the 2018 season. But having LeBron James and Paul George, I mean, it sounds great, but I just don't know how it will fare out for Alonzo in that situation and his growth as a player, knowing that LeBron James, he pretty much plays point guard on the floor. But I do think that the Lakers will improve, and I do think that they will have a big pickup heading into next offseason. Uh, now, there's been a couple of former Raptors stars in the news recently. Chris Bosh was officially bought out by the Miami Heat. And much to his chagrin, he's going to have to retire due to the blood clots illness. And then uh, Vince Carter just recently signed with for one year with the Sacramento Kings. So, yes, I did see that. Where do you think the Raptors view those two in their history? Should either of them have their numbers retired and... Do you think they're welcome back either together or separately? Uh, well, I, I definitely feel both both numbers uh, should be retired. Now, uh, not necessarily having Chris Bosh's number retired by the Raptors, and the reason why I would say that is because although he did have some great years, he did have some all-star seasons, and he did lead us to the playoffs, I don't believe that Chris Bosh was consistent enough as a Raptor. I believe where he, his career flourished and where he grew as a man, especially, was in Miami. Uh, having to play with the pressure of playing with a LeBron James and going from being a first option to a third option, although he wasn't the best player on the team, it forced Chris to grow and become a better basketball player from that experience. So that's why I do find that it is fair and it is a very nice gesture of the organization to retire Chris Bosh as number one with Miami. Vince Carter with the Raptors, I definitely feel like his number should be retired just because, I mean, his name when he was here, of course, Air Canada, Vince Air Canada Carter. The Raptors, obviously, being a franchise that entered into the NBA as an expansion team in 1995, we didn't have too many highlights. There were a lot of lowlights, and we couldn't get a star to come to the NBA. In the 1998 draft, when we picked up Vince Carter, all of that changed. And, you know, Toronto, although it wasn't necessarily a destination for a bunch of All-Stars to come to, it definitely put the city and the team on the map. And because of Vince Carter doing that, I, I really believe if we didn't get Vince Carter, we may not have the Raptors today, such as the way the Grizzlies left Vancouver and went to Memphis. If we didn't have a, a star player like Vince Carter the Toronto may not have a franchise right now. So I definitely feel like we owe it to Vince. Uh, I, 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 was, I had my fingers crossed. I was hoping that we would actually find Vince. But hearing Vince, uh, he's actually doing some commentary at the moment for the NBA Summer League. And he says he wants to play four more years until he's 44. So uh, possibly Raptors, they might still have a chance because he only did sign a one-year deal. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's one of those things. I grew up with the Raptors myself and. I remember Damon Stoudemire leaving. I remember Marcus Camby being traded. I remember when we traded Damon Stoudemire, Kenny Anderson was one of the guys coming back and returned, and he threatened to chain himself to his locker rather than come up there. So <laughs> ha having Vince Carter 
call Toronto his home, then re-sign here when he became a restricted free agent at the time. That was a big deal for us Raptor fans, and we still, as much as it was a bitter divorce at the time, at this point, years later, we kind of want to welcome him home. Oh, definitely. I mean, we we had the tribute video for Vince Carter, I believe, a season or two ago. A lot of uh, the bad blood is water under the bridge now. And, and it would be a nice gesture, especially what he's done for this franchise and for this city. Uh, you see a lot of Canadians now that are in the NBA. They not only attribute Canada's basketball growth at the grassroots level for their reason of making it to the NBA, but also they attribute a lot of their talents and the reason for wanting to play the game is because of Vince Carter and growing up and watching him as a child on TV. Uh, you know, the Andrew Wiggins and the Nick Stauskas of the world, of Corey Josephs, you, 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 all, you all hear these guys mention Vince Carter's name uh, when talking about being a kid in the greater Toronto area and playing basketball. So what, what he's done for so many Canadian children, not only the ones that have made it to the NBA while he was a Raptor, those are very special moments. And I definitely feel like either re-signing and having him retire with the Raptors, as uh, Boston has done for Paul Pierce, or if, uh, you know, we could actually re-sign him and get him for a season, maybe to bring some veteran leadership to the team, also help uh, Kyle and DeMar with some of the uh, guard uh, the guard play, that would be amazing. All right. And yeah, that would be great for the city here, and I think that's a great place to leave off on. Uh, thank you, Alec. This has been a great help here on, the, on this podcast, and uh, I hope to hear from you in the future. Oh, definitely, Adam. Same to you. Take care, and I hope you have a great summer. All right, you too. Let me apologize to begin with. Let me apologize for what I'm about to say. But trying to be genuine was harder than it seemed. And somehow I got caught up in between. This last segment, it would be a besmirch to my name if I didn't talk some hockey, my first ever episode of Cursed Sports. With that, I'm going to talk about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, the Hockey Hall of Fame induction. Now, there's only two times a year when the Hall is front and center in the hockey universe. First, when they announce the inductees in the last week of June, and the other is the actual induction night in the second Monday of November. When that inevitably happens, fans and members of the media will take in the names announced, and then immediately start complaining that somebody else didn't get in. Last few years, there have been a few media darlings that portray that. First, there was Pat Burns, who fans and media members wanted to get inducted prior to his death in 2010. When it didn't happen, everybody started screaming until he was eventually put in as part of the class of 2014. Once Burns was put in, attention went to Eric Lindros. When Lindros retired, there wasn't really an appetite for him getting into the hall, but as people got more educated about the business of hockey and the impact and concussions that can have on a player, it made sense for those on the outside to push for him to get in for the 2016 class. And then there's Dave Andrichuk, who is one of the NHL's leaders in points and goals, and he is also the all-time leader in power play goals. He was an afterthought in many years until he was inducted in this year's class of 2017. Now, the one thing I will say is there is always a case to be made for somebody who isn't in. Right now, I have three names off the top of my head who I believe should be in and are not for whatever reason. But when you're complaining about it, it's important to at the very least know how the process works. The biggest misconception that anybody has is to hold the same standard at, for the Hockey Hall of Fame as the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
They handle their inductions completely different. For the Baseball Hall of Fame, members of the Baseball Writers Association of America are given a ballot, and everybody who is eligible is eligible to be voted on. In the end, a player needs to have 5% of the vote in order to stay on the ballot for the next year, and they need 75% of the vote in order to be inducted. There's no nomination process in this, so anybody who's eligible can be voted on. In hockey, it's different. There's an 18-member selection committee that's appointed by the board of directors of the Hall of Fame. They are John Davidson, Scotty Bowman, David Branch, Brian Burke, Colin Campbell, Bobby Clark, Mark Defoy, Eric Duhatchek, Michael Farber, Ron Francis, Mike Gartner, Andres Hedberg, Yari Curry, Igor Larionov, Bob McKenzie, David Poyle, Luke Robitaille, and Bill Torrey. I apologize if I mispronounced any of the names. But I want to emphasize, first of all, that nobody employed by the Hall of Fame is a member of the committee, so when you're yelling at the Hall that your guy wasn't inducted, it's pointless. But these people represent the NHL, the CHL, the IAHF, Hockey Canada, USA Hockey, French and English-speaking print and broadcast media, and other honored members of the Hockey Hall of Fame. These guys have probably forgotten more about hockey than any of us will ever know. With these guys, each one of them are allowed to nominate someone from the builder, player, and officials category. And for the players and officials, they have to be retired three years before they're able to get inducted. There is a process for the general public to submit someone for consideration to be nominated, but it's up to one of those 18 guys in order to nominate that person. And once the nomination process is done, only those who are nominated can be voted on. Now, unfortunately, at this point, the Hall of Fame keeps those who are nominated a secret to not to embarrass them if they aren't selected. But unlike the Baseball Hall of Fame, the same person can be nominated consecutively no matter what percentage of the vote they get. In order to be inducted into the Hall, like the Baseball Hall of Fame, you need to have 75% of the vote. So what can we learn from this? The question people should be asking why their favorite hockey person wasn't inducted was, were they nominated? Not all the 18 members have to nominate someone. So if there's only a handful to have someone in mind, those bubble players could be left waiting until the committee changes. Look, it took Rogic Vachon 31 years before he had enough votes to be eligible. Also, character and relationships mean so much more in this because if a committee member doesn't like an eligible prospect, there's a highly chance they won't even be nominated. So come November, when the Hall of Fame is back in the spotlight, it's important to know who the right people are in charge of these decisions. And for the love of God, if you're going to complain about it, at least make sure they're eligible. So this is the end of the first episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. Things will hopefully get better as they go on. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, anything like that, feel free to follow me and tweet me on Twitter at Kirschenblatt, K-I-R-S-H-E-N-B-L-A-T-T. And stay tuned for next week for episode two, where you can hopefully find that on Kirschsports.com or on iTunes. Have a good one, people.